It's time for Lawyers for Jesus, a show about the dynamic and exciting interaction of faith and the law, featuring the attorneys from the law firm Malkin Baker in downtown Chicago. Malkin Baker is nationally known for defending freedom and for serving the people of faith. And now, Lawyers for Jesus. Hello, welcome to Lawyers for Jesus. I'm Whit Brisky, an attorney and partner at the law firm of Malkin Baker in Chicago. We are Christian attorneys who focus on serving the body of Christ with its legal needs. To learn more about us, go to mountbaker.com. That's M-A-U-C-K-B-A-K-E-R.com or call 312-726-1243. If free speech is something Americans value, why is much of the public okay with silencing those who dissent or at least those with whom they disagree? Today, we'll be talking with Lada Knott, Executive Director of the Freedom Forum Institute's First Amendment Center. The mission of the First Amendment Center is to provide resources to help the public understand their freedom of speech, press, religion, assembly, and petition work, and how they can be protected. Lada regularly provides information and commentary on issues involving these rights. Lada, welcome to our show. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, Lada, why should everyone care about free speech, even when it's offensive to them or when they disagree? Well, the First Amendment protects us from the government censoring our speech or punishing us for our speech. And that's such a crucial thing for a functioning democracy that you have the right to express yourself, even if the people in power don't like what you have to say. Uh, What people tend to forget, though, is that First Amendment rights are indivisible. Your rights are my rights, even if everything you say is offensive to me. And the same laws and policies that can be used to silence you can and will eventually be used to silence me. And so that's why everyone should care, even and especially for speech that they disagree with. Well, that's right. And uh, my experience uh, was uh, in when I went to college in uh, the late 60s and early 70s, it was the the liberals who were primarily pushing for free speech rights and uh, through um, protest marches, sit-ins, burning draft cards, burning flags. Uh, But my experience has been that now it seems more like the conservatives uh, seem to be more worried about uh, restrictions on speech, at least uh, uh, on the surface. Uh, Do you want to comment on that? Sure. Um, first of all, what's interesting is that during the 1960s, in the free speech movement, um, you're right, there were a lot of liberal and progressive uh, leaders in the movement, but there was also sort of a coalition of uh, conservative and libertarian uh, figures as well as um, the more progressive figures. So it was um, more across the board politically than people uh, people usually characterize it as. Um, today, again, you do the popular conception today is that you uh, have conservatives who are more supportive of, of free speech than liberals. But I think it's I think that this is true in almost every era that uh, everyone's a bit of a hypocrite when it comes to free speech. Everyone 
likes uh, the First Amendment when it protects their own speech and dislikes it when uh, it comes into play for speech that they disagree with or find abhorrent. So again, I do think that you feel you see liberals supporting um, First Amendment rights on some issues and conservatives supporting First Amendment rights on other issues, and um, perhaps there's less of a, a coalition of people in fa- supporting all speech than there used to be in the 1960s, which is unfortunate. But um, you always do see that there, for most people, some First Amendment rights matter a little bit more than others, depending on where they fall on the political spectrum. Well, that's true. I, although I was involved in litigating a case a couple of years ago, and we drew uh, a judge here in uh, Chicago who had uh, been a, a member of the ACLU and had defended the Nazis when they marched in Skokie, Illinois, which uh, certainly in the Chicago area is an extremely notorious incident. And mm-hmm. he was, uh, as an old-time liberal, extremely protective of uh, free speech, even speech that he acknowledged he found very offensive. So I I think that the free speech movement is most effective when it brings together conservatives and liberals and others uh, of good faith who want to protect those rights for everybody. I agree completely. It's uh, like that quote that isn't actually a Voltaire quote, but everybody thinks it is, that uh, I may disagree with everything you say, but I defend until the death your right to say it. I think that's a very powerful concept. Yes, I do too. You're listening to Lawyers for Jesus. I'm Whit Brisky of the law firm of Malkin Baker. If you missed part of this episode or want to hear other Lawyers for Jesus interviews, visit malkbaker.com. You can also subscribe to our Religious Liberty newsletter and follow us on Facebook and Twitter for legal updates with a biblical perspective. Today, we've been speaking with Lada Nod, Executive Director of the Freedom Forum Institute's First Amendment Center, about protecting free speech and other First Amendment rights. Uh, what are some ways in which free speech is being silenced or restricted in our world today? Well, something that I watch very closely in my position are state laws, because we, so much of the time we pay attention to the federal government and what, uh, you know, what the White House is doing, what Congress is doing. That's all very important. But you do see that on the state level, um, states are passing laws that can have a chilling effect on free speech rights. Like many states um, have either pass or considering a legislation that would have a chilling effect on the right to protest that would make, say, protesting on, uh, like, uh, critical infrastructure, like where a pipeline is, where an airport is, that's already trespassing. But some of these laws say that, oh, well, conspiracy to commit such protests or aiding and abetting such protesters can uh, lead to prison time. And that's something that... You see, with laws like that, it makes people afraid to join in a movement, to join a protest, because it's unclear exactly when that conduct might get them in trouble. And that is what we call the chilling effect, and that's uh, that's a terrible thing to happen to speech and the rights to protest and the rights to, to express yourself. Yeah, I, I have a, a feeling that the Supreme Court would not let that kind of law stand, because it would seem to be a restriction which goes to the content of what someone does when they say trespass. Uh, and that, and I agree with you, I think that could be very chilling. Uh, what, do you, what do you think uh, students in college and universities where some of the free speech uh, uh, 
disputes are seem to be most uh, noisy and uh, hot right now. What do you think they should know? Well, you know, there's a growing idea among college students that uh, speech, like hate speech and offensive speech, can pose grave harm in the real world. And they're not necessarily wrong about that. Speech can be very powerful. That's the whole point of the First Amendment protecting it. Absolutely. But I think there's a lack of understanding, uh, again, not just among students, but among everybody, of how important it is to protect even speech that you find offensive and repulsive. And I also think uh, when it comes to students, we'll always be moaning that they don't understand the First Amendment and that they don't respect free speech. But if you look at, say, high school students, they are constantly being told by by their schools, by adults, often incorrectly, that they don't have any free speech rights. And then I think it's a little silly that when they get to college, everybody talks about how they don't understand the First Amendment. I think that uh, it's very important for students to know that they do have free speech rights. Uh, Public school students, the Supreme Court has famously said that their rights do not stop at the schoolhouse gates. They might not be as expensive as those of adult, as adults. I mean, schools can censor or punish student speech that substantially disrupts the learning environment, but they still have them. And oftentimes they're told that they don't have them. I think that's terrible. Yes. Uh, now, one of the, the tricky areas right now is when a controversial speaker uh, comes to campus and there are these protests. Uh, so to the extent that the protesters interfere with the right of that uh, speaker to speak or the right of the ones who want to listen to that speaker to hear, uh, there's a conflict in, in the rights between the protesters and the speakers and their sponsors. Do, do you know where, how would you draw the line in terms of the, the rights of the two groups? I, you're absolutely right. It is, it, it's a conflict there where you've got uh... I mean, some states have actually passed laws saying that if you interfere with the speaker, then you can be punished for that, um, and colleges can inflict penalties for that, which to me seems like, well, then their right to protest is being quelled. But then, of course, if you've got students showing up and essentially using the heckler's veto to shut down a controversial speaker to keep other people from listening to that speaker, uh, free speech rights are imperiled. If you're drawing the line, I think that... I think that there needs to be a, a clear idea that there are other ways to react to speech that you don't like other than shouting it down. Um, it can be an incredible learning opportunity to actually confront a speaker that you disagree with with, say, pointed questions, um, or to basically just use it as an educational opportunity for why you disagree with the speaker instead of uh, using the heckler's veto. I don't think anybody learns anything from that. Well, I, I agree with you. I uh, was giving a presentation on free speech rights at, at one of the Illinois State Universities. And uh, it was very peaceful. Everybody, there was what was called later to me a quote-unquote silent protest. Uh, but they listened to us and afterwards came up and had a discussion with us. And I think we, we made a great deal of progress with the students who were quote-unquote protesting our exposition uh, who began to understand what we were saying. And we also, I think, always learn from what they're saying. So I thought that was great progress. On the other hand, there was an administrator. Again, she didn't interfere with what we were saying, but she had, was monitoring it and saying, well, you know, gee whiz, uh, uh, I know all about this legal stuff about the Constitution. You have your Constitution, but here we... That, that's not important to us. 
what's important is for us to have uh, a safe place. And, you know, it was kind of like I made no progress at all with the administrator. Uh, coming up, we'll talk further with Lada Knott, Executive Director of the Freedom Forum Institute's First Amendment Center, about other relevant free speech issues. I'm Whit Brisky, and this is Lawyers for Jesus. Hi, this is Pastor McCracken, pastor of the Church of Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in Markham, Illinois. For the last four years, our church has been struggling to overcome the city's efforts to shut us down. In the midst of all of our legal issues, we felt overwhelmed and discouraged. All we wanted to do was worship the Lord and serve our community. We needed a law firm that not only had the knowledge of the law, but the same commitment of the kingdom of God. The Lord connected us with the law firm of Malcolm Baker. The attorneys at Malcolm Baker have not only provided us with exceptional legal representation and counsel, but have also provided us with the added gift of lawyers who pray with us and seek the guidance of the Lord at every step. After working with Malcolm Baker, we can't imagine working with anyone else. If your church or ministry has any legal needs, please call us 312-726-1243 or look us up online at maukbaker.com. Welcome back to Lawyers for Jesus. I'm Whit Brisky, an attorney at Malkin Baker, a law firm based in Chicago, which serves churches, ministries, businesses, and individuals in their legal needs. If you missed the first part of the show and want to listen online, go to malkbaker.com forward slash radio. Today, we've been speaking with Ladanat, executive director of the Freedom Forum Institute's First Amendment Center, about free speech and free expression. Uh, Lada, I want to throw in a, a question kind of from left field. Uh, the first formal limitation on government rights in our Anglo-American legal tradition was Magna Carta, which dates back to 1215, uh, when, of course, the First Amendment freedoms of expression and religion didn't exist. It was, it's my theory, it's my thesis, that uh, that Magna Carta, which had more to do with due process and property rights, was really the first step in the creation of the rights that we now hold dear in our Bill of Rights. And that without those rights of due process particularly, the others are meaningless. Uh, what do you think of that? I, I like that thesis. I think that makes a lot of sense in that... Uh if there's no due process, then if you are saying that, hey, the government is suppressing my free speech rights, there's no process for you to go through where, um, you know, you can actually show that they were taken away from you without cause. So I, I do agree that that's like a, that it's an essential procedure to have in place um, in order to have other rights. Another thing I'd like to point out um, is that when the drafters of our Constitution were originally uh, drafting the First Amendment, petition was the very first First Amendment freedom that they mentioned. Um, the first five freedoms uh, encompassed by the First Amendment are speech, religion, press, assembly, and the poor one that everybody forgets, petition, which just means the right to ask for the laws that you want. And it's interesting that they put that one first because they considered that one to absolutely be the most important thing, just the right to approach your government and say that this law is burdening you, that you want a different law. And 
today we kind of take that for granted, but I think there's a, an argument to be made that that's essential, but every other law sort of supports that one, that it's our, our right to be in conversation with our government about what we want and what we need. And yet those who are actually in the business of petitioning for others who know the system, uh, we call them lobbyists, are often um, uh, looked down upon. So we, we, have, to, we have to remember that uh, importance of that freedom to petition. That's true. And that lobbyists come, I mean, we generally think about highly paid lobbyists, which of course, who of course exist, but uh, lobbyists come in, all, come in all shapes and sizes and anybody who approaches the government asking for different laws can be considered one. Yeah. And I know uh, people who have to register as lobbyists can be relatively low paid uh, people. Mm-hmm. I mean, not, not rich ones, but, but uh, people who just work hard and try to represent the, the clients that they have. Uh, is the government trying, the government on different levels, is it trying to protect our First Amendment freedoms? And if so, how? Well, you've seen that, uh, or we've seen that in the past few years, the Supreme Court has generally been very supportive of First Amendment rights. A couple of years ago, there was a landmark decision that said that uh, um, access to social media can be considered an, an important part of free expression and First Amendment rights. I thought that was huge. And you're definitely seeing that uh, most court decisions have been bolstering First Amendment rights. Um, the executive branch has been a little bit more all over the place. Uh, you know, For example, the White House issued an executive order supporting free speech on college campuses. Uh, that's good. That's great. But um, the president said he supports a proposed constitutional amendment to make flag burning illegal. And to me, that amendment is sort of antithetical to the concept of free expression. So, you know, you, you, you see uh, different stances on different issues, let's put it that way. Well, yeah, and I think uh, this, this flag-burning amendment, not only is it antithetical, but it really it, it pushes people actually in the wrong direction and away from uh, what is really nonviolent protest, although perhaps offensive, and pushing them into more violent things. So, I think that would be a terrible uh, thing. It has no chance, of course, but it would be terrible. Uh, right. And, of course, some of these, these efforts uh, to protect free speech, and uh, you mentioned the uh, state laws that, that were trying to protect speakers, uh, but then would also have a chilling effect on protest. That can have a, um, a backfire effect, if you will. Isn't that right? That's right. Um, it's interesting to see that some, some like legal efforts to protect free speech, uh, as you mentioned, they'll hinder other people's rights to express themselves, to protest and speak. And so a law that should ostensibly be about supporting free speech can have a lot of people who oppose it. Uh, and that's, that's problematic. I think it's, it's hard to walk that line, but it's something that I think lawmakers need to keep in mind that uh, you need to think about everyone's free expression rights. Right. Uh, you're listening to Lawyers for Jesus. I'm Whit Brisky of Malkin Baker. We're talking with Lada Knott, Executive Director of the Freedom Forum Institute's First Amendment Center, about free speech and protecting our First Amendment rights. Uh, Lada, what's the, the Hatch Act, and how does it potentially hinder free speech of government employees? Well, the Hatch Act, um, it dates back to 1939, I think. And it's a law that was passed to prevent 
federal employees from engaging in partisan political activities, like endorsing or opposing particular political candidates. And it's interesting because it has a, a noble purpose. It's to protect federal employees from political coercion and make sure that they're not, uh, their advancement is based on merit, not based on what political party they support. That's good. But uh, to that end, federal employees aren't allowed to engage in political activity while they're on duty, in the workplace, or when they're speaking in their official capacity. See, the problem is that... Uh, Sometimes it's hard to define what political activity on duty really means. Uh, recent guidance about the Hatch Act said that it applies to social media activity. And that's something the White House actually pushed back on when uh, Kellyanne Conway was written up for violating the Hatch Act. Um, the guidance has also said that government employees who use terms like the resistance could be construed as using as you know engaging in political activity. So it's not necessarily a Republican or Democratic issue. It's something that affects all federal employees, regardless of their political affiliation. And the problem is that while it has a noble purpose, the Hatch Act, the problem is that it's hard for federal employees to know when their speech is violating the Hatch Act. Like I said, it can be hard to tell whether something is political activity or just regular conversation that you're making. Um, so a lot of them will just refrain from engaging in any political activity at all. And that's a chilling effect on government employee speech that can definitely hinder their speech. Well, that's certainly a problem. Although, you know, speaking from Chicago where um, the political machine here pretty much uh, has, has uh, the ability to hire patronage throughout the entire uh, city government. Uh, I can see the reasons why uh, the Hatch Act might be a good, at least a good noble purpose, but I can also see how uh, maybe it makes the problem worse in a lot of cases. And my, uh, my default is always, let's... Uh, Let's not have a government coercion of anything unless we know it's going to help, because it will have unintended effects. Um, what is the right of conscience, and, and is that protected under the First Amendment? I don't see it anywhere in there. <laughs> well, uh, James Madison actually wrote something that would have probably explicitly protected the right of conscience, but it wasn't adopted into the Bill of Rights. But um, anyways, the freedom of conscience is a part of religious liberty, I think you could consider it. Um, Basically, since religious liberty is guaranteed by the First Amendment and says that the government can't infringe upon the practice of one's religion, you see freedom of conscience come up when people seek religious exemptions from government laws and regulations. Um, you know, as an example, like a pharmacy that seeks an exemption from a state law that requires pharmacists to dispense emergency contraceptives if that pharmacist is, uh, if their faith uh, objects to the use of such. Okay, and uh, those. Those laws actually, I, I, I've read quite a few of them, and they, for the most part, uh, allow not only religious uh, objections, but also non-religious moral objections to, uh, for example, abortion or, or whatever, uh, to be used uh, to protect that person's conscience too, right? That's correct, yes. Um, okay. And... Uh, so what do you think? I mean, is, do you think it is protected under the First Amendment or do you think it requires uh, laws or are these things things that uh, may uh, cause uh, the First Amendment and the protections here to be? Um, well, you know, I'm going to have to leave it at that with that question uh, because, you know, exactly what we do with the, with, uh, the right of conscience uh, 
in the absence of a particular statute is something we'll have to talk about on another time. Lada, thank you for speaking with us today. How can people learn more about uh, Freedom Forum Institute and the First Amendment Center? Well, I hope that uh, they'll visit our website, firstamendmentcenter.org, um, or freedomforuminstitute.org. We'll, we'll get you there, too. There's so many resources about how the First Amendment works, how it can be protected. Um, we're a neutral and nonpartisan organization that really focuses on making sure people understand their core freedoms. So we strive to be the best resource possible. Great. Uh, if you have a legal need or a question and want the perspective of a local Christian attorney, contact us at Malkin Baker. You can reach us at 312-726-1243 or at malkbaker.com. That's M-A-U-C-K-B-A-K-E-R.com. Visit our website and subscribe to our Religious Liberty newsletter with legal updates or call us and mention Lawyers for Jesus for a free consultation. Thanks for listening. I'm Whit Brisky, attorney at Malkin Baker, and this is Lawyers for Jesus. have to serve somebody Yes indeed You're gonna have to serve somebody